Libya is a really interesting place, isn't it? Including acts of terrorism. Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. You're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? Conversations about national security. If there's one country that has been quixotic, if I can use that term, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it properly, in the 20th century, it is uh, Libya. Libya, of course, was uh, used to be run by a king and then a man called Muammar Gaddafi, calling himself a colonel, took over and I believe it was 69 or 1970. And to say Muammar Gaddafi was bizarre would be um, <laughs> damning with faint praise, I think. He was an odd gentleman. Uh, he had some quirky things. He, he wrote this amazing green book, which I had a copy of when I was a, an intelligence analyst in Sigint. And uh, yeah, it was weird. It was, it was a weird thing. Uh, he was a, an international pariah. He supported terrorism groups. Of course, he, uh, the United States claimed he, he organized an attack at, at, a, at a, a, uh, a club in Berlin in 86 that killed several U.S. servicemen, which led to a U.S. bombing uh, of uh, Qaddafi's compound later on. And then uh, Qaddafi met a rather ignominious end in 2011 when uh, this is during the so-called Libyan Revolution, part of the so-called Arab Spring, when the government was overthrown and uh, Gaddafi was found, I, I, I'm not kidding, found hiding in a sewer pipe, a drainage pipe. He was pulled out, they beat the shit out of him and they basically killed him. And then ever since then, Libya has been in complete chaos. Now, interestingly, about a year, almost a year after uh, Gaddafi's death, there was a terrorist attack that was carried out by Al-Qaeda. And there was actually a series of terrorist attacks on the U.S. consulate and CIA annex in Benghazi, Libya in which four Americans were killed, including the U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens. Apparently, uh, upwards of 150 people attacked the consulate, and apparently they they haven't been brought to justice just yet. So I'm delighted to bring into the podcast Sarah Adams. Now, Sarah's got a very, very interesting background. She spent time with with the agency, with the CIA. She's an award-winning targeting officer. She's currently the chief operations officer of the Ukraine NGO Coordination Network. And, and my, my Ukrainian side, my mother's side, thanks her for doing that. And more importantly, she's the author of a brand new book, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, a cold case investigation. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Let's go back to first principles then. Um, how did Libya go down the toilet after Qaddafi? I mean, you could say under Qaddafi, Libya was, was a bit weird. Of course, economic sanctions were against it for years. It was always sort of on the outside of acceptability internationally. But when Qaddafi bought it in twenty in 2011, things got even worse, if that's possible to imagine. So what, what really happened, Sarah, in the after sort of the later stages of the Arab Spring, when Qaddafi dies and Libya goes down a very, very bad road in terms of its society? Yeah, I'm going to back up the date slightly. So starting in about 2007 is when the United States government wanted to um, open relations more with Gaddafi, work to get him off the, um, you know, the list of terrorist sponsors. One of the things they asked him to do, and he started doing it in 2008, is releasing prisoners from a prison in Tripoli called Abu Salim Prison. That's where he kept terrorists, political prisoners, um, you name it, basically the opposition to his government. So starting in 2008, terrorists started getting released. They got released again in 2010. And so a lot of people don't realize it was the terrorists who really were like, the, the moving force to go after and take out Gaddafi, like they're the ones that basically helps establish some of the better militias. They were the ones who could train Libyans because, you know, Libyans didn't have weapons. They hadn't fought in wars. The terrorists had fought in Afghanistan, Iraq, Algeria. So they, they were battle hardened and had that experience. So then 
right? The Libyans win the revolution. The revolution was really quick. A lot of people don't realize it just went February to October. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, after the revolution ended, right, the um, Libyan people wanted a democracy, um, or at least to be able to choose their type of government. The Wait, terror- you say Gaddafi wasn't a dem- democratic person, Sarah? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they call it socialism, but it seems a little worse than that. Um, but yeah, so so the people wanted, you know, to choose their own government. The, the, obviously, as you can imagine, the terrorists wanted some sort of Sharia government that came into conflict um, the terrorists then became some of the most powerful people in the country. The new government actually basically interacted with the terrorists, right? First off, like I said, they were used to all those years of socialism. So they were paying all these fighters even after the revolution for fighting for them. So all the terrorists basically got a paycheck every month from the Libyan government. Mm-hmm. The Libyan government also had to appease them, right? Because they were worried the terrorists would come overthrow their newly forming government. So so the terrorists unfortunately got brought into the Libyan government right away and they basically hijacked the revolution from the citizens. Now, when you talk about terrorists in in Libya, Sarah, from what I know, and I'm not a Libyan specialist, but it seems to be a real dog's breakfast of actors, isn't it? I mean, there certainly was at one point was an Islamic state, albeit small affiliate in Libya. Of course, there's an Al-Qaeda affiliate. Who were some of the main sort of main actors in Libya at the time? Yeah, so the main actors, it's really interesting. Libya, if we just kind of do like East Libya and West Libya, so we do like Tripoli and Benghazi, it's actually very different actors. So Tripoli, you got more of those, um, like the Libyan Islamic fighting group. Um, You kind of get that kind of network. And then the Eastern side, you had more of like, the terrorists that back in the day fought with like the Islam um, Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Mm-hmm. So even in the Benghazi attacks, there's so many terrorists, right, for Al-Qaeda to choose from. They actually, when you go through the bios in our book, most of the terrorists are just from East Libya. They didn't even have to tap into their Western networks. So you also had a large number of terrorists who really were in, were, they're aligned to other senior Mujahideen heroes over the years um some people were aligned like back to heck Matir back from afghanistan yeah some fought with bin laden and zawahiri like i said and then some fought with some of the other um really senior um afghan mujahideen leaders and then they brought that back to libya and created groups so some of the big groups created um was one called answer allah mm-hmm. another one created was um called the, the martyrs group, which is really interesting. It was formed in the nineties. And a lot of people think it's disbanded, but it actually still exists. And they had a, quite a few attackers at the Beganzi consulate. Again, that was founded also in the nineties. So these are very historic networks. It's almost like you need a program to tell the actors in some ways, there's so many different groups competing for attention and, and p- competing for resources then. Yeah. We actually counted just the number of groups we had named in our book and it was over 50 wow. <laughs> between militias and terrorist groups. Wow. Okay. I definitely need that program then. Okay. Let's fast forward then, uh, Sarah. So you, you've, you explained well, and thank you for, for um, giving my listeners a bit of backdrop in terms of what happened. So now we're at September the 11th, 2012. By happy coincidence, uh, September 11th, is there any link to 9-11? But what happened in Benghazi then on the 11th of September in, in 2012? Sure. We don't know if it exactly has the link to 9-11. We think the terrorists, um, we know they started planning in June, and we believe it was Ambassador Chris Stevens who was the plan from the get-go. So it was, they they knew he'd go back to Benghazi, right? He was famous for being in Benghazi. So it was when. We think the terrorists first found out he was going to Benghazi on September 6th. 
Um, as most people know, he arrived um, pretty much the day before the attacks. He came into town to fill in for um, the principal officer who was going on vacation. They were also opening something called an American Club. It was a cultural center. It would have a library in it. And then he was actually going to prepare because Secretary um, Clinton was coming to visit Benghazi in October. So he had, you know, a few things on his list, but obviously with an ambassador coming into town, the local government was notified. And as you know, the local government was a mix of terrorists, militia members. Mm -hmm. So they got that first notification on September 6th that said, hey, please give us extra personnel to protect our consulate when the ambassador arrives. So that's when we think they then chose the date of um, 9-11. Okay, and so okay, so what actually happened on that day in Benghazi? Then, and obviously, this is part of your book, but can you just walk us through sort of the Coles notes? Uh, sorry, that's a very Canadian term. Sort of the, the highlights of what happened on the eleventh of September that year. Yeah, perfect. So you know, the ambassador stayed on the compound that day um, for you know for safety reasons because you know it was nine eleven. You know, he had some visitors a little late in the day. Um, you know, um, the uh, Turkish consul general came. A couple of Brits stopped by, um, and then. You know, um, a little after 9 p.m., he decided to go to his room, um, you know, to like bed down and go to sleep for the night. So t- the terrorists actually began to storm the compound around 9.42 p.m. I think the times confuse a lot of people in the West. That's only 3.42 p.m. if you're like a Washington, D.C. time right, in the United right. States. So it's just in the middle of the afternoon on a work day when the attack um, started in the United States. Um, so, yeah, the terrorists basically... Um, rushed the main gate. They ended up actually going in many of the gates. Um, and as you know, with that kind of number, 150, yeah. not 150 all Russia compound, it was about 80 to 90 Russia compound. The other terrorists had positions on the streets around the compound and they were supposed to not allow, you know, vehicles and other ah, persons okay. into near the premises. So, so it was all cordoned off by terrorists around the compound as well. And then, they would have overwhelmed the security present at the time then. Oh, so honestly, uh, the security presence at the time, there was supposed to be four armed guards. One guy, um, ironically, was off the day, that day. So there's only three armed guards at wow. that main entrance. When you watch the video, one guard gets a couple shots off. Um, he shoots a terrorist in the foot. We identified who that terrorist was. Um, and then they rush him. I mean, they, they had no chance. The other guards on the compound were unarmed. So they, they really couldn't do much against you know the, the, um, the heavy weaponry that was coming in anyway. Um, so, yeah, so then they, there's basically two attacks occur on the consulate. Um, one attack is that initial attack. Another attack is the attack right after the rescue force from the CIA comes. You know, they, uh-huh. as noted, they're delayed. They, they, they left their compound maybe t- 20 minutes into the attack, arrived in the vicinity of the consulate. Um, so another attack happened soon after that. The third attack then was when the State Department personnel from the consulate left their compound. They had a vehicle ambush, so they were ambushing their vehicle. And then the last three attacks that night against Americans were all in the CIA annex. So there was two attacks, you know, where the um, embassy, you know, they had like RPG attacks, small Mm -hmm. arms. And then the last attack of the night was the mortar attack. So basically for the Americans that died, two died initially on from the fire set you know, during the first attack, and then two Americans died during that sixth attack during the mortar strike. Wow. So so six attacks, that speaks to an incredible, either incredibly lucky or very sophisticated planning in the, in the works then. 
Yeah, well, the really interesting part is um, we really can only confirm the first two are Al-Qaeda. The third one, we actually didn't identify who did the ambush. Because remember, in Benghazi, just in these neighborhoods, there was militia compounds all over the place. So we don't know um, if the attackers kind of like hung out at a compound nearby and came under attack or if a militia, when things kicked off, or like, hey, let's, let's group at our compound. We don't know what's going on. And then when the vehicle came, they ambushed it. The, the CIA annex is completely different. We can confirm nobody from Al-Qaeda went to the CIA annex. So we actually don't consider the CIA annex an Al-Qaeda attack. We actually um, consider that an attack by a terrorist. He's now deceased. His name is Wissam bin Hamid. And at the time, he was running something called the Libya Shield in Benghazi. Um, so, so it's really funny because if you read a lot of the U.S. government reports, right, they say the Libya Shield is the one who saved the Americans. And that always makes me laugh. I'm like, no, they're the ones that shot mortars at us. Um, so, yeah, so he's the one who directed the mortar fire. Okay. Now, your book, Sarah, is, is, is subtitled A Cold Case Investigation, which leads me to ask you two questions. The first one is, like me, you're ex-Intel, so we're used to having access to intelligence when we do our assessments, although I've been gone for better part of eight years now. How difficult was it to come up with information to write the book? Did you have access to unclassified intelligence? Was it just a lot of sort of, you know, uh, getting getting dirty in, 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 on your knees and trying to figure this stuff out? Where did the most of the information come from? If you can disclose that, uh, when you, you and, and Dave Benton decided to write the book. Yeah, I mean, I luckily had a leg up. I had worked on, obviously, CIA's investigation because I was in the CIA. I was in Libya when FBI came out, so I got to work on FBI's investigation. And then um, I got pulled into Congress, and I worked on one of the congressional investigations. So I knew the gaps in the government. That's why I call it a cold case, right? Because I knew the government wasn't going after the attackers. So I actually decided to do an investigation, me and Boone did in private, in secret, and completely unclassified. So Mm -hmm. we never discussed our investigation with anybody in the US government. There are times we provided tips to the FBI if we came across them, but we um, did the whole investigation in private. You know, obviously we won't talk much about our sources, but if you Mm -hmm. look at our book, it's pretty clear. our information comes from Libyans, right? The U.S. government doesn't have this information. We have more right. attackers in the U.S. government. We have photos the U.S. government doesn't have. We have true names of people that the U.S. government only has, mm-hmm. like their abu or nickname. So, yeah, the um, the level of detail is because, honestly, we went and did it without the U.S. government. Well, kudos to you. And I'm assuming, though, that given the sensitivity of this particular issue, did you have to vet the manuscript with the agency before it was published? Yeah, I mean, any time that we write about our time in the agency, we have to vet that. So like I said, while we did the investigation completely unclassified, me and Boone talking about our time, obviously, at the CIA annex, you know, Mm -hmm. what we did in Libya for work, all that stuff we had to, um, of course, vet because we're talking about you know, CIA operations. Right. Well, as, as I had to do with my recent book as well, because I use all of ex-CSIS and RCMP people for my sources. The second part of that question then, Sarah, becomes why why hasn't the U.S. gone after the, uh, the people behind it? They certainly have gone after other terrorists that have killed Americans in the past. So what is it about this case? And, and you know, if you could say that's different, why is it that these perpetrators are still at large? Yeah, so... I mean, this is my opinion. I mean, I I luckily have had a lot of people in the last several months from the CIA and FBI basically tell me that they're very thankful um, I did this book. So I so I know my opinion is probably quite factual. Um, it's the fact that 
there was a narrative, right? And it was this protest narrative, you know, whatever you want to say about the narrative, the, the key part of the narrative, right? Al Qaeda wasn't included. So they pinned um, the attack on like a fake mastermind. His name is Ahmed mm. Abu Qatala. So we have him jailed in the United States for being the mastermind and he's not, right? Okay. So you can't really go after the rest of the attackers. Even the one they detained is one of his associates. Because if you pick up these Al Qaeda guys, then they're going to tell you the truth, right? Because they're going to be in a courtroom in the United States and they're going to be like, I didn't report to that Qatala guy, right? I reported to like Muqtab al or whomever they reported to within Al Qaeda's chains. So I think having to stick to the narrative basically um, stopped them from going after the attackers because there's no way the two could coincide together. So initially I thought that would only be for a couple months, right? It's like, okay, there's an election a month or two. They'll like drop this stupid narrative and we'll go after the attackers. <laughs> but the crazy part is they never dropped the narrative and no one then was ever allowed to go after the attackers. So yeah, it's super frustrating like when politics gets involved in intelligence in this way. Oh, don't get me started on politics involved in intelligence. <laughs> yeah, I forget you're Canadian. Yeah, Sorry. We're, we're dealing with the aftermath of the so-called Freedom Convoy, sort of our, our mini version of the Capitol yes. attack, which wasn't nearly the same level. And, and the politics is just disgusting. But anyhow, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, so, Sarah, um, where does Libya go from here now? I mean, it's certainly... From, I mean, I get most of my information on Libya from The Economist, which is a very good publication, but doesn't publish all that frequently on Libya. But what I do know about Libya is it's not going anywhere good anytime soon. Is there any people would have thought, you know, the Arab Spring and, and I've talked a lot about the Arab Spring and the false hopes that that brought, which is unfortunate for the vast majority of the hundreds of millions of Arabs around the world. And they thought, you know, the, the dictator, president, whatever the hell he calls himself, Gaddafi is dead. So there's better days ahead. And yet clearly Libya is not in a good place now. I mean, can you be, you know, rainbows and unicorns for my listeners and, and have any kind of silver lining to a very dark cloud for Libya? Or is it going to be a hellhole for the foreseeable future? I don't know. You know, I mean, I spent time in Libya and the Libyan people are amazing. Um, you know, they're being failed so badly by their government. I mean, you even hear Gaddafi's son being thrown around as leading the country um, in the future. Um, so wow. I know I, I, you know, I feel like. I don't, it's a problem with their government, right? Like, and you know, I don't know how to fix my own government. You don't know how to fix your own government. <laughs> I sure as heck don't know how to fix the Libyan government, but the government wasn't established correctly. The government is kind of causing all the woes. Obviously there's two governments, right? There's the official Libyan government who the US and the UN support. Yes. And I kind of think that's a little bit of a failed policy. And then there's a whole separate government ran by, you know, General Haftar, and that was right, based right. in the East. So yeah. again, another issue. I mean, at the end of the day, the Libyans are going to have to choose, right, which of the two governments they want. And then, uh, you know, we're going to have to hope, you know, the leaders of that government go forward and do the right thing. But um, yeah, I think the next step is getting the Libyans to choose. Do you want the government that's sitting in Tripoli right now? Do you want the government that's sitting over in the East in Tobruk right now? Make a choice on a ballot. Is there any possibility of partition? I mean, it's de facto partition now, right? Yeah, I mean, there's de facto partition. But um, if you actually look at the map of Libya, I mean, um, you know, the eastern government controls like three fourths of it. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's mostly that large area around Tripoli that the current, you know, real Libyan government's um, owning. I really don't see it happening. 
I could see if we saw those lines and they were tribal or something. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's still kind of like a war between Tripoli being important or the East being important, right? So I'm not sure I see a partition. I really think it will stay united. It's just who is going to win out in the end. I think that part is very unclear. And um, if the U.S. keeps um, supporting the the Libyan government, it does give that piece in Tripoli a one-up, right? Okay. One one last question, Sarah. Of course, one of the preconditions or the feeding grounds for terrorism, as some scholars have said, is is instability. So you have a country with weak governance or no governance. You have civil wars. You have hostile actions between one part of the country and the other, as is classic in Libya between West and East. Do you see this as essentially a, a great thing if you're a terrorist or a terrorist group where you could basically set up shop in Libya because they're too busy fighting their own battles to worry about fighting you? I think that's how it originally started, you know, in um, 2012, terrorists are pouring in, right? They're like, we want to make this um, our new safe haven. Starting in 2014, though, when, when that General Haftar started um, the terrorism operations in um, Benghazi, and then he did it to the eastern city of Darna, and he killed a lot of the terrorists, he at least has shown, so most of them now are based in the Tripoli area, so he's at least shown, hey, these, part of the, these parts of the country are off limits. And he, the terrorists are not operating in those parts of the country. I mean, basically, you know, um, they're not even risking it, right? Because he was just putting so many on the X. So I think when you have those effective counterterrorism operations, you can show, hey, this place isn't safe. Now, as you know, they don't have to go to Libya, right? I mean, there's Afghanistan. So there's always going to be somewhere unstable. I kind of think it's, you have twofold, right? Somewhere like Afghanistan gives you a place to go train, be indoctrinated. But lots of times, some of that just happens at home, right? You, yeah. you get the idea to want to go travel to these places from something like there's a spark in another mm-hmm. way. It's not just, um, you know, that those countries offer it, like you want to go take part of it. And that's another piece that we really need to deal with. Exactly. Well, as you said, you know, like most people around the world, Libyans just want, you know, they want a chicken in every pot. They want their kids to go to school and they want to be living security. So they're dealing with this uh, maelstrom of violence and and the average Libyan just wants it all to stop and get on their lives. So uh, kudos to you, Sarah, I I think for bringing out the book. I'm going to put a link to it uh, in in the uh, podcast notes so people know where to buy it. Thank you also as a from one next intel to another for telling your story. I mean, it's important, I think, for those of us who, as I say, worked at the coalface to actually share our perspectives on things like terrorism, national security, uh, because it's a perspective that, you know, we're not encouraged to share, right? Especially when you're on the inside. Um, and when you get out, it's, uh, I think there's, there's room for more voices like ours to tell our stories. So thanks for taking the time for being on the podcast today. No, thank you. And as a Canadian, I mean, I think you'll be surprised because two of the the Benghazi attackers we highlight in the book were actually Canadians. So they are known in Canada for being terrorists and they died in early 2013. But I don't think anyone knows publicly right now until our book came out that the two were also Benghazi attackers. So, um, yeah, so there is a little bit of a Canadian angle there, too. I, I could have told you that, Sarah, but I would have had to kill you. No, just just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thanks, thanks so much for sharing your story and good luck with the book sales. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Sarah Adams, an ex-CIA analyst and tar- targeting officer on the 2012 attack in Benghazi, which at the time got a lot of attention. 
I'm curious what you thought of our conversation. And more broadly, do you like it when I bring on people who used to work in Intel on the the program? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenedrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You get all the podcasts and all the blogs. You'll also find there a link to my latest book, The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. You can order it off there. It's self-published. Love to hear your feedback. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe.